Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Hollers Bible study, we're continuing on in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 16. We'll be starting at verse 9. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Chuck, would you lead us, please? Thank you, Lord, that uh, you do lead us through your word. And you also tell us that we need to divide your word and to carefully make it understood and and we think this is providential because there has been so much change in the books that we receive and so much distortion that has been written into them by man, some of it accidentally and some of it intentionally. So, Lord, we pray that you will guide us through Mark tonight as he attempts to show us what is to be learned from this uh, 16th chapter in the book of Acts. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank amen. you. Good evening, Mark. Hi, Tom, and everyone. We've got a good studio audience with us tonight. We've been looking at the book of Acts as the systematic fulfillment of all of God's promises made to the patriarchs and to Israel in what we call the Old Testament. And we spent uh, a lot of time laying the groundwork, showing how Christ taught his disciples the spiritual nature of the kingdom in the period of time between his resurrection and his ascension on the Mount of Olives. And we also have been noting how the plan that he laid out in Acts 1, that they would take his good news to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth is being carried out in great detail along with all of the Old Testament promises as well. We're seeing this over and over again. We paused for a while at chapter 15 where the believers in Jerusalem had to make some adjustments due to the plan progressing to the point that vast numbers of Greek-speaking peoples who were not Judean by nationality were believing in Jesus Christ and were being joined into them, and they had to make certain adjustments. We spent a good deal of time talking about that, and we'll see the ramifications of that through the remainder of the book. Uh, After that was over, two emissaries of the Jerusalem church came back up to Antioch in Syria with Paul and Barnabas, and the results of the conference in Jerusalem were received with uh, joy by all. The gist of it, we can deduce, is that the Greek-speaking believers who were not circumcised, who were not members proper of the Judean nation, were now citizens in God's restored kingdom, 
without having to follow the law of Moses or to be circumcised. And, and this is a cause of great joy. And after this was absorbed there a while, Barnabas took Mark and went back to Cyprus. And then Paul took Silas, one of the two emissaries from Jerusalem, and they went back up into southern Turkey to visit all of the churches that Barnabas and Paul had established there amongst the synagogues in that part of the world. And let's pick up our reading. Let's back up to verse 5 and read down through 10, please. Chapter 16. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. And they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Great. All right, Leslie, thank you very much. Uh, Things are moving quickly for us now. Paul and Silas have gone back through all of the towns where there were synagogues, where vast numbers of the Gentiles had uh, had believed that Jesus was the Christ and they were established in their faith and they were still increasing in number and they were already a large percentage of the synagogue community and now they're reaching beyond that to bring in Greek-speaking or Gentile believers as well and so the numbers are increasing presumably both of Judeans and of the uh, Gentiles. They Apparently, we're going to, when they finish that loop there in south-central Turkey, they were going to head due west into the province of Asia, Ephesus being the the major city. Uh, Asia, at that time, is not the continent we think of now, but it was a province uh, along the west coast of Turkey, kind of the nose of Turkey sticking out into the Aegean Sea and a lot of large and prominent uh, cities there. Seven churches in Asia are addressed in the book of Revelation, you, you may recall. So they obviously knew that this would be a good place to go, very concentrated area to work in, and it would prove to be so later. But they are interdicted by the Holy Spirit, and they apparently turn north, north, northwest, to the north of Asia, where Mysia and Bithynia are set north of Asia, kind of at the northwest corner of Turkey, where the Bosphorus is and uh, Constantinople and, and that area. So they are heading that way, but instead of turning off of the main road to start making another loop in, in northwestern Turkey, they were not allowed by the Spirit of Jesus and so they came down to uh, the seaport at Troas. We have inherited the doctrine of the Trinity, which has come down through hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition. It's tied in a little bit 
with the idea that Jesus is far, far away and we need to wait for him to come back so that we can see him and that we can be close to him and so on. But the more I study, I find this to be at odds with uh, what we just read simply in the scriptures. Jesus departed in the body, but he indwelt the disciples in spirit form. And so I no longer view the Holy Spirit as a separate personality, separate and distinct from the Father and the Son, but rather the unified Spirit of the Father and the Son that indwells the believers in the new spiritual temple that we studied as we went through the Gospel of John together. So people are all confused, the Holy Spirit, then the Spirit of Jesus. It doesn't confuse me at all. It makes perfect sense. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of the Father. It is the Spirit of Jesus. It is God. It is God's Spirit. It is God in spirit form indwelling the believers. Paul and Silas both have the gift of prophecy, meaning not only does the Spirit of God indwell them as he does all believers, but also speaks specific messages to them and you know as as they live, which is no longer necessary for us today because the scriptures have been put in written form, but at this point, all they would have had in written form would be what we call the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures, so that's just a little aside there on the guidance that they're getting as they navigate through central and then northwestern Turkey. And as they came down to Troas on the coast, Paul receives a vision where he saw a man of Macedonia standing and and begging him to come over into Macedonia and help us. So since they had been blocked from going every other way they went, and now they have this vision, they immediately tried to find the best way to get to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. We also see that Luke, our author, has uh, changed the pronouns to include him in the company. We assume from this that he apparently joined the company there at Troas. And so that's my thoughts down through verse 10. Any other thoughts at this time? All right, let's read. in the spirit can be a good thing. Well, yes, I mean, we, we're spoiled in the United States. We expect immediate gratification. We expect to do God's plans our way, not his way. And uh, we don't sometimes see the gift of delay or uh, suffering in our lives as we try to accomplish God's will. Okay, well, let's go ahead and read uh, 11 and 12, please. Therefore, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Simothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. All right, thank you. We see here that Luke, although we're told that he was a physician, he was also very knowledgeable in geography and even navigation and shipping. He he gives a, a lot of specific details 
of the voyages that he accompanied Paul on, and he gives the uh, the route here. They are going to land in Greece, or present-day Greece, almost as close, the first major port that they will come to after departing present-day Turkey. And this is Neapolis, which is the port city near Philippi. And so Neapolis and Philippi are kind of connected. They're a few miles apart. I don't remember the exact uh, distance. It is important to note here that Philippi was a Roman colony, which meant that the people that were born there and that lived there had opportunity to become Roman citizens. And they were self-governing, as all Roman citizens were. They did not have uh, an imperial governor of any sort appointed over them. They were responsible for maintaining order and following the dictates of the Roman laws uh, there in that area. Would there have been Roman military station there in these places? No, absolutely not. Rome had no Roman soldiers, and Roman colonies had no soldiers. Unlike Jerusalem, which was not a colony, it was an occupied city, so there was a fort and a garrison there. It was a pretty significant difference and a big psychological difference between being in a colony city and being in you know, an occupied city. But that's an excellent point to bring up. Macedonia is uh, kind of the eastern part of Greece. It's up in the north and to the east of the uh, of down where Athens and Corinth and whatnot lay. This was the home country of Alexander the Great. His father was Philip of Macedonia, and this was where really the the Roman Empire that existed in the first century it was born here in Macedonia. The Romans took it over later, but they loved all things Greek. They adopted the Greek pantheon of gods and tried to copy. They even copied Greek ideas that the Greeks never adopted, like the laws of Solon probably is the prototype of the Roman law. So this is a very important area. It's kind of the birthplace of the known world and the center of the Greek culture that Alexander took pains to spread throughout the known world, which included the common language, Greek, that made the gospel plan of Jesus that we found back in Acts 1 uh, very easy to uh, carry out. All right, they stayed here. This is unusual in that there was apparently no synagogue in, in Philippi. There had to be ten male Judeans who were not excluded from the community of Israel by one thing or another in order to establish a synagogue. Any other thoughts before we read uh, verses 13 through 15? Wasn't Philippi in Revelation a city that Jesus commended? No, I'm trying to think of which one you're thinking of because those seven churches were all in Asia on the other side of the uh, Bosphorus in Turkey. So Mm. 
Philippi was not one of the seven. And there, I, I can almost think of the one that, that uh, sounds similar, but it, it's not the same oh. place. All right, well, let's go ahead and read verses 13 through 15, please. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. All right, thank you. Looking up that city that you were thinking of, um, Pergamum is one of them. That starts with a P. And then Philadelphia, maybe? Yep, Philadelphia. Revelation 3, 7. Philadelphia, Philippi, that's probably the one right there. All right, so there was no synagogue in a formal sense, but there was an assembly site down by the riverside, a place used for prayer. Maybe this is where that old song comes from, let's go down to the river to pray. If any of you saw, oh, brother, where art thou? Down by the riverside, yeah. That's another one, yeah. There's several that have been inspired by this passage here. And we see that it was women who had come together. So the women were not authorized to form a synagogue. They were second-class citizens in the old earthly kingdom of Israel. But in the new spiritual kingdom of Israel that has been established and that is being rapidly built here, by the apostles that we are reading about in the book of Acts, the women and the Gentiles and the eunuchs and the foreigners are all being elevated to equal status as the earthen vessels in which God dwells and through which he shares his treasures with the rest of the world for their healing. So these women are about to get uh, really good news. And the entire party of Paul sat down and visited with them as they had come together. And they would have welcomed this. They would have been excited to see so many devout men of Israel uh, come into their midst here. And and particularly, I mean, Paul studied at the feet of Gamaliel. So this would have been a rich, rich treat for these devout women. Lydia is mentioned by name, and many of us probably know that A purple merchant was not a poor person. She was from Thyatira, which was over in Turkey, where these guys had, you know, come from. I don't remember exactly where Thyatira was, but it was this one of the few places where you could harvest these uh, murex shellfish that when you cracked them open, you got one tiny drop of this clear liquid that made this purple dye to create purple colored fabric it was incredibly valuable it took many many of these shellfish hundreds or thousands maybe to generate enough purple dye to make one large garment so her customer base would have been the wealthy and the powerful if she was a purple merchant 
as it tells us she was. She was very attentive to what was say, <laughs> to what was being said here, R- reminding me of Mary, uh, Lazarus' sister, back in the Gospel of John, who sat at Jesus' feet along with the men and soaked in uh, every word that he said. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. And so then it just says, when she was immersed with her household, it doesn't labor the point or anything. It's just the pattern has already been established that once someone believes that Jesus of Nazareth was the fulfillment of all of God's promises and was God's promised Messiah, then instead of circumcision, which was, of course, limited to men, the believer would be immediately immersed in water to then be transformed and brought into the spiritual kingdom of God. So, you know, it just skips right over that that her heart had been opened by God, so she really paid attention to what Paul was saying. And again, this would have been extremely good news for her as a woman trying to lead the people of Israel in that place. And uh, her whole household was immersed along with her. And she then begged them to stay with her in her house if you have judged me to be a believer in the Lord. And she would not accept no for an answer would be one way we would say it today. <laughs> she compelled us. And again, she would have had a large house being a dealer in purple. She would have had a you know a Roman villa with a courtyard, enclosed courtyard with an outer gateway and things like that that the common people would likely not have been able to afford. She, so she would have had the room to take in the entire party, which few people would have had the ability or opportunity to do. All right. Any thoughts or comments on this? She was a good listener. Does she have a husband? He's never mentioned. So we don't know if she was a widow or, or what. She was a leader of women. Would that be unusual for a woman like that to be a prosperous merchant? That would seem out of context of what was going on. Well, in Judea, it would have been very uncommon. But in the greater Roman world, it would not have been, I mean, it, it would not have been prevalent, but it would not have been uncommon. The Roman women, you know, engaged in business, owned property, and uh, they fared much better than, say, Judean women if their marriage broke up or something like that. Our question, we know that Paul did go to synagogues wherever he found them. Here you didn't seem to have a synagogue, as you said. Uh, you had a place that they refer, that's referred to as a place of prayer where people went to pray. What, though, would have been, here we are a long ways from Judea, and the Judeans, and what would have been the nature of the religion that Greeks in a place like this would have been practicing? Would it be some Roman-style religion with a prayer sprinkled in? Or I don't know that our synagogue is referred to as places of prayer elsewhere in the Bible. Is, is this Were these typical Israelite, Judean-style Israelites that... Uh, were in this group where they went, where they found them, or what What would these people have actually believed? I guess that's what I'm getting at. 
Yeah, that's a great question. I strongly believe that these would have all been people who viewed the one true God of Israel as the true God of the universe. There would have been ample places for pagans to worship in the city of Philippi. It would have been completely full of all the Greek pantheon of gods under their Greek and Latin names, both uh, probably. So the fact that they separated themselves from that and came outside is strong evidence. Plus, Paul's consistent pattern that he was going everywhere in the Roman world that he could get to that had a Judean community. This was his passion. And these communities had not been idle. They had been preparing for at least uh, one or two generations the uh, hearts and minds of their neighbors by inviting them to assemble with them. And remember, synagogue didn't mean a building. It just was the Greek word for the assembly of God's people. They had taken in these Greeks and had been letting them hear the scriptures. They, they would have been reading from the Greek translation of the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures as we know them today. This is why in the book of Acts, when we hear quotes from the Hebrew scriptures, they're nearly always taken from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of those scriptures. So if we add all of this evidence together, I believe Paul had heard that there was a Judean community, and the only reason he stayed there a few days to wait for the next Sabbath when they would have been gathered together. Otherwise, I believe he would have just gone right through heading for the first city that had a synagogue. But he waited until Saturday when they would have all been assembled. He found out where they would meet, and he went and sought these people out. So we can believe that Lydia was from a synagogue back in her native Thyatira and that she had learned to worship the true God there at the synagogue, whether she was a Judean by nationality or ethnicity, you know, we don't know or, or, or not. But she apparently had a background in the synagogue back in her home, and these were apparently other expatriates from synagogues, and it was probably a mixture of Judeans and Greeks, but all of them would have acknowledge the God of Israel as the one true God and creator of the universe. I hope that answers your question without uh, over-beating it. <laughs> Thank you. you one, one could go on a long ways on this because you can get into the question of animal sacrifice and things like that and what practices and then, and, and then there, I, I guess the one question that, that I... Uh, always wonder is were the Judeans back in Jerusalem worshiping the one true God or were they worshiping something that had fallen away from that and that is why Jesus called them the, the lost the sheep of the house of Israel so I wonder if really the statement that they were worshiping the one true God really meant that they were I think it sounds more like they found the one true God when Paul showed up well I think we need to be cautious. We can take, you know, study of Babylonian Kabbalism too far. It reminds me of when Elijah was afraid for his life and he prayed to God to be spared because he was the last one left in Israel 
who believed in God. And God uh, took him to task for that and told him, I forget how many thousands it were, that there were thousands that had not mm-hmm. bowed the, the knee to Baal. And so what we find in the Judean nation, in Palestine and scattered in the Roman world, is a mix of all of the above. And and so I think we... I think it's very dangerous for us to generalize and to throw them all into one category. We know when Jesus was born, yeah, the leadership didn't care about God's promises, but we have uh, Simeon and Anna waiting in the temple, had been promised by God they would see the Messiah before they died, and they did. There were true believers scattered through all of the communities of Judeans everywhere in the world and so you know we don't know but certainly whatever confidence they had in however they worshiped god before which was very difficult being in greece with the temple down in jerusalem chuck is is correct that this new truth that paul is sharing with them eclipses whatever knowledge and understanding they had of following the law of moses We also need to remember that the common thread through all of this is that no one could follow the law of Moses completely, entirely, perfectly. They all fell short of it, and some, you know, way short, and some had gone, you know, completely into the paganism and Kabbalism, which has tainted uh, modern rabbinic Judaism, no doubt, in many ways. So, anyway, uh, there's a mix, and we don't know, we're not told what her heart was before, but we are told what her heart is after hearing the gospel. Thanks, Mark. All right. So we can assume that Paul's party, which we presume is about four people at this point, moves into Lydia's house. We can also assume that there's some excitement that we don't have the detail on, and just like in Jerusalem and in Antioch and Syria, they're no longer just getting together every uh, Sabbath or Saturday, Friday night, as it is beginning at sundown. They're probably, since Paul is there, while he's there, they're probably coming over to Lydia's house every possible opportunity. And these men are, are sharing all this new excitement and news with them, But then they're also going to start venturing out into the community. Let's go ahead and read uh, verses 16 through 18. And it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit from fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. All right, thank you. Now, they're going back, presumably, to the same place of prayer. And it occurred to me, in putting Chuck's thoughts in with this, that in addition to meet or Saturday for their weekly scripture reading, 
assuming some of them, Lydia would have probably started collecting scrolls with her wealth at, at this point. But also, back in Jerusalem, at 9 a.m. and at 3 p.m. every day, they are offering uh, prayers in the temple courtyard as a lamb is being uh, sacrificed in the courtyard where the altar was. And so it may have been that this small Judean community in in Philippi, at those two times of day, they may have gone outside the city to try to get away from the pervasive paganism that surrounded them to observe the two times of daily prayer that all Judeans did. Don't know, but, but again, this Chuck bringing to mind how difficult it would have been to follow the law of Moses at such a distance from the temple, that, that just came to my mind. Now this slave girl possessed by the Spirit is following Paul around as their relative motions permitted and announcing that, that the party are servants of God Most High. They are proclaiming the way of salvation to you. I find it interesting that Paul didn't immediately heal this girl. He is focusing on this Judean community, I believe, because this this is the way the gospel was to be preached to the Judean first and then to the Gentile. The Judeans had to be converted and translated into the spiritual kingdom, and then they are equipped then to carry the good news out to the nations amongst which they live. Paul wasn't trying to personally meet and convert every person in every city that he went to. I mean, he skipped by huge cities that had no synagogue. He is going to the Judean first, and by giving them the good news and the understanding of the kingdom and and all these tools, he will then leave them behind to carry the plan forth to the nation. So he's able to ignore this girl for many days, we're told here. But finally, he gets annoyed and calls the spirit out of her, which came out immediately. And uh, Well, I never saw that movie, The Exorcist. I don't know how long, you know, that, I don't know how long the process takes, you know, with a Roman Catholic exorcism or anything, but this was, this was nothing drawn out, nothing that would make a good movie, apparently, because I don't guess, I've never heard of anyone making a movie out of this, but he commands and it's instantaneous, just like healing a withered arm, raising someone from the dead. It doesn't require multiple prayer meetings. This is a, these are special gifts of God's power which were unique to this 40 years in which the new temple is being built amongst the uh, amongst the known world. Alright, any other comments before we continue? Okay, let's read 19 through 24 please. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. And the crowd rose up together against them, And the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. 
And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So Paul and his party had probably been under the radar up to this point, even though they had been there some time, because, again, they are, they are focusing on and working with the Judean expatriate community in the city. They hadn't gone out and confronted anybody. But it sounds like Paul even delayed this as long as possible. Perhaps he knew you know, what would happen. But as soon as this demon came out of this girl, the owners saw that their means of making a living had completely disappeared. And so it had a, an immediate financial impact on them. And so they dragged them into the forum, which would have been you know, a large open place within the walled city where the markets would likely have been, uh, a lot of shops would have been right in that area. It would have been kind of the center of commerce and of government for the city. And there was a, a sitting magistrate there at that time who was responsible for administering uh, Roman law. And so the men that had lost their means of uh, likelihood pretty much tried to paint their whole case by painting these men as Judeans, not as Romans by implication. And they are talking about something that's totally foreign to what Romans would uh, think and talk and so on. Apparently, Paul and Silas were never allowed to answer these charges, produce any identification or anything, but the mob is, uh, is worked up by these charges and the magistrates who are supposed to administer the procedure of law completely fail in their responsibility to the law and instead uh, respond immediately to the demagoguery and the mob rioting that was going on there uh, where they were. So they, uh, just like Pilate did with Jesus, they allow these men to be punished without any guilt having been proven according to the procedures of Roman law. So they are beaten severely and then thrown into the equivalent of a dungeon and secured in stocks in a dungeon. So they're in what we would call heavy or, or maximum security, maximum security in the jail. Okay, have we, uh, have we about used our time up, Tom, for this evening? I think so, yes. This is uh, probably a good place to stop. Do you have any other comments or thoughts? It looks like guilt by association, not by, by what they did. They were frenzied by false accusations. Yep, it's, that's exactly what it sounds like. So we'll, this is going to be real interesting as we continue on to see the ramifications of all that. Okay, great. Well, thanks, Mark. Another great lesson. Look forward to continuing on. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. 
Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.